Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Galsamark Lamont is an author of three New York Times best-selling books. The Dressmaker of Karkana, about a young entrepreneur who supported her community under the Taliban. Ashley's War, which follows a special ops unit of women in the US Army. And The Daughters of Kobani, the extraordinary story of the women in the Kurdish militia that took on ISIS and won. Ashley's War is currently being developed into a major motion picture at Universal with Reese Witherspoon as one of the producers and The Daughters of Kobani is being developed for TV by Hidden Light Productions. Gail serves as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and as a journalist has written on women's entrepreneurship, forced marriage and women in the military for outlets including the New York Times, the Financial Times, the World Bank, the Atlantic and CNN. Welcome to the podcast, Gail. Great to be with you. Now, I'm going to start at the very beginning because it's a good place to start. I'm going to take you right back to your childhood. You've described growing up in a condo complex surrounded by a really supportive community of single working mothers. What was that time like? What kind of kid were you? And did those role models shape you? Absolutely. It was a time when women who had very little made us feel like we had a lot. No one ever asked my mother and my godmother and the other woman who worked with us. So there were three women who had decided to move to the same place. They all had one daughter and no help. And they really formed their own community. So we were always at one another's houses getting milk or sugar. And they were all working at least two jobs. So late at night, we would all pile in the car and go to the grocery store at 10 o'clock at night, go to the warehouse grocery store. And, and somebody would ask somebody else, you know, everybody's car broke down. So as soon as your car broke down, you would go knock on the door of somebody else and ask them to push it in to the parking spot. And I vividly remember seven of us pushing the Ford Fairmont into the spot in the blizzard in our apartment complex. And it really taught me the value of going to work. And it set the stage for me, both in writing and in private sector work, to think about counting the uncounted and making the invisible visible. And what about your dad? Did he have different views on women, leadership, strong role models? <laughs> yes, and actually wrote about him for the first time, really, in the Daughters of Kobani introduction. My father was born in Iraq. He was Iraqi-born, born to a father who was from the Kurdish region in Kirkuk and a mother who was from Baghdad. And he lost his country, his food, his school, his friends, his language as a boy because he was the wrong religion in Iraq. And really, he never spoke of it, but displacement was the central fact in his life. 
And it really taught me about seeing the world through others' eyes and that to understand why people do the things they do, you have to sit in the seat that they sit in. And you have to understand that there is no other. It's just us and we're all in it together. Um, and yes, I, I would have a couple of funny stories about, about women's rights, but I will tell you, the first one was uh, we had battled for years about whether women needed to go to work or school or, you know, he was very pro-education, but also couldn't understand all of my advocacy for girls' education and all of this stuff. And he looked at me one time when I said to him, why should all the women be cooking and cleaning, right? Why did the men eat first? It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And he said, do you really think men and women are equal? And I started laughing. I was like, well, there it is, because we, we know clearly. But it taught me so much, Julia, about that was not an absurd or a mean question for him. I was really questioning the very fundamental underpinnings of the world he had grown up in. And so to understand what women were facing all around the world, I, I really had to look no further than the community my father was raised in, which has transformed a great deal, but which really showed you at the start that there were differences that were enormous between men and women in terms of access to opportunity. Well, you obviously took the opportunities that you could. And if we fast forward now to the late 90s, you're starting out as a journalist in Washington. So that's very exciting. What was it that drew you to journalism as a career? And what was life like for you in those early years? Yeah, and I have to say, you know, I've left journalism in recent years, but I started it as my mother tongue, you know, because it, it is this community of people who care about ideas and big ideas and what's coming next. And the whole idea of connecting people and helping people to see there was no other, that it, what, what was happening in a community of single moms in PG County, Maryland, who no one cared about, but who were the economic backbone of so much that people needed to occur in the United States for growth to happen, to the broader macroeconomic picture and everything in between, and to understand that politics actually mattered to people who couldn't take leave from their work because they wouldn't be able to feed their kids. So my mom, when she got sick and she had a union job, but even those benefits ran out when you were sick for more than two weeks. And when she had the flu and then I had the flu, she actually brought me to her break room at the telephone company and said, you can't tell anybody you have the flu. Just sit here and watch soap operas because she couldn't afford to take more time off. So that politics really mattered to people who were on the front lines of the economy and what it created. And, and that was what drew me to politics. And was it hard to tell women's stories then, women's political stories? You're obviously drawn to them, but this is journalism and this is the 1990s. How receptive was it? I actually did almost no writing about women and girls. Then I did a lot of politics coverage for ABC News and at CNN.com, and I would try to slip in things here and there. But the truth is, it's hard to tell those stories now. Right, 2023, you can imagine in the 1990s. And I worked with amazing people who really did care about getting things right. But I think the broader macro stories of the economy and U.S. domestic politics certainly outweighed anything that was going on in people's lives at that level. And you left all of that to go to business school. Now, most people would be going, gee, successful career, journalism, got it pretty good. Why business school? It's so true. But I think it was growing up on the economic edge taught me the dignity of a job. And I wanted to understand how jobs were created. I wanted to understand why the economy included some people and left out so many others. And I wanted to pierce 
the real bubble of privilege that is the MBA class, particularly at Ivy Leagues. And I thought, no, those people are no brighter than all the people I grew up with. And they really aren't. <laughs> you know, I mean, I saw that firsthand. They're incredibly bright, but so is the community that I came up in, almost none of whom will ever have the same set of opportunities. So that was really why I went to business school. I had seen what happened when MBAs were executing plans on the economy, and I wanted to understand the drivers of how that came to be. And did you feel that sense of confidence when you were in that moment that you're in this class? I mean, when I think Ivy League, American University, I think of lots of very privileged, you know, white kids who have come from, you know, huge homes, probably with servants and support. Were you in that moment sitting in that class thinking to yourself, well, I'm as good as them and the community I come from is as good as the community they come from? Or is that something you now see in hindsight? I learned it. I was really embarrassed about where I came from at the beginning, truly. And the thing that helped me so much at Harvard Business School was that I had already been at ABC working for incredible people, covering incredible stories. So I had been at the center of the action. And after that, everything seems kind of less high octane. I also had quit ABC three times, once to go to Spain on a Fulbright, once to go to Germany on a Robert Bosch fellowship to work on a book on on German angel investing and to work at the Wall Street Journal. So I had had enough experiences by then that I really understood that every place, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., London, they all think they're the center of the universe and they can't be right, right? Not all of them can be right. So I did have a bit of, wow, you know, some of these people are third generation. Harvard Business School. Some of these people have names that have buildings in common, right? But I never, I think I'd come from enough experience by then. If I had done it five years earlier, I would have felt much less comfortable. But because I was 29 when I joined, I felt like I really did have a better sense of myself and of the place. But I never talked about where I came from. I was deeply embarrassed to be someone who came from a world that looked so very different, right? Where we all went to Marshalls and knew layaway. Everybody worked two jobs and dinner reservations was Denny's. And it took me a very long time, I'd say probably four to five years in my view, a long time to realize that that was actually a huge advantage. Telling the story of your life, it just feels like it's got so many unexpected turns. The business school is an unexpected turn. And then the next unexpected turn is you decide to begin reporting on women's entrepreneurship in conflict zones. So you're travelling to Rwanda and Afghanistan. And after you'd graduated from business school, you reported from Bosnia and Liberia. What drew you to that? I mean, with your journalist background and then Harvard Business School, you could have been on a business channel telling us about whether stocks and shares were up or down that day. Yes, you know, it was a bit accidental, but also serendipitous. I was looking for a way to combine telling stories with economic development, inclusive finance, sustainable finance in a way that was human. And so I spent the summer actually at St. James Square at BP, doing competitor intelligence and a microfinance project, working for with a great person, Mr. Morgan, who really taught me a huge amount. And then I went to Rwanda, actually, and spent two weeks writing and meeting women who were starting businesses. And all of these very fancy people told me, we don't have women starting small and medium enterprises. Like we have micro businesses, we have a lady selling cheese at the corner, you go talk to her. And I said, That is important. But I want to know if I could meet women who have, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 employees. And there's, oh, no, we don't have any of that (laughs) in three days. I'm like four of them, you know. And that gap 
between what people expected women to be doing and what women were doing was the gap I lived with my whole life. And I thought, I know how to tell stories that will bridge that gap and really catapult these folks into people's imaginations and reshape because the, the theme of all these unexpected turns for all the work I've had the privilege of doing across sectors is reshaping the investable universe, expanding who and what we see as investable, what companies, what countries, what people, what geographies we see as worth our time and resources. And it was unbelievable to me that all these women who were creating jobs, creating growth, the kind of small and medium enterprises required to lift countries to the next level were really not being written about, talked about, being paid attention to. Certainly, there were lots of folks globally doing different pockets of that. So I would never say I was the only person. But I saw a real opportunity to bring it to Harvard Business School, to bring it to the FT, and to say, you know, look, these are people we should care about. And then once that got traction, I was joking with the Harvard Business School people that it was, you know, good press for them. So they were like, where else do you want to go? And they were incredibly supportive. So that's how I ended up going to Afghanistan. You know, Jeff, Professor Jeff Jones, the head of research still at Harvard Business School and had come from Oxford, he said, you know, go to Afghanistan and do the same thing. I said, great. And that's what I did at winter break. And then you moved to writing books. So what was the thought process about I could get something incredibly revealing in the FT about women entrepreneurs in Afghanistan through to I'm going to write a book? I had no idea how to write a book. I mean, truly, I'd come from journalism. So the first time I turned in what was supposed to be, I think, three chapters, the editor I was working with said, that's brilliant. You've now told the whole story in 1,600 words, and you have 82,000 more to tell. I said, oh, all right, back to the drawing board. But the truth is, if you love telling stories and if it's in you, you're just the host. You know, it's this virus that finds you and it won't leave you. And and I had met this incredible young person who had a business under the Taliban and whose business really had gotten her whole community through a very difficult time. And every story tells you what it wants to be. There was no way to do justice to the story without really telling it in its full because it was a story of young women who had become breadwinners during years they couldn't be on their own streets and who had never gotten credit from the international class, you know, the international elites who read these kinds of stories and and also all the moms I grew up with who see themselves in a story about a girl with a back against the wall, right? They'd never really gotten full credit for the work they had done and I, I wanted to change that. That is your first book and it is an incredible story. It's Kamala's story, isn't it? And she is there living under the Taliban. She's an entrepreneur. She's a dressmaker. She's finding a way to educate girls even when that is strictly being cracked down upon. You tell her story. Can you perhaps just encapsulate that story for us and the the time period that that was and then connect it to the present day? I mean, one of the things about that story is it's very layered between what is victimhood and what is resistance and what is agency. How does that make you think about what's happening to Afghanistan today and women today in Afghanistan? The narrative of the victim trumps everything for those outside Afghanistan when it comes to women. And when you are inside the country, you have the privilege of meeting women who are shaping their communities every single day against enormous odds, no matter what the obstacle is. 
dressmaker of Carcano is a story about a girl who had to figure out how to support her brothers and sisters at a very difficult time when her father was in danger for staying. And so she realized she was actually really lousy at sewing, but she was very good at bringing the people together who could sew and then going to the marketplace and selling those dresses. And that dressmaking business, which grew out of desperation, really led to the innovation of people from around the neighborhood coming to her saying, my aunt's cousin's sister's friend says you have work. Because what people don't know about the toll bond is exactly what's being experienced now, which is they do not have the technocratic capability to run an economy. And you add to that the international community and sanctions, right, and what's happening. And it makes it incredibly difficult for moms and dads to feed their children. And it was the same then. And so when I fast forward to now, it's even more so. There are women who are against great odds finding ways forward because they always will. And it is, in my view, one of the greatest people and sources of investment would be to support those women as they push forward in their communities. When you were traveling in Afghanistan to get this story, when you were wanting to tell the story of women entrepreneurship and you met Kamala, I've heard you say in interviews that a person who was assisting you, I think maybe an interpreter, said to you, it's better now under the Taliban. Can you unpack that for us? I mean, I think most people from the outside would think it incredible that a woman would say that to you. Well, interesting. So there's many, many layers to that. For some people, the predictability of the Taliban in the 90s, this was in the 1990s, was made it safer. Right? There were just far less attacks that were putting people at risk. There were also UN officials at that time, UN men, who would say it was much easier for us, for the international community under the Taliban, because we could negotiate a deal with the Taliban and it would stick. And I would say to him, well, it's interesting. I want to make sure that that view is represented. But I also want to show the girl of the 16-year-old girl whose whole future was altered by the Tolban's arrival because she was due to go to Turkey to study with her brother. And of course, Tolban came, her brother left. She became the sole breadwinner, worked for in sanitation for an international NGO. And then when she, the time it came to study, her father said, no, you have to get married. This is the time you get married. There's no universities for girls. There's no higher education for girls. You go find a husband. And she said, those men reshaped my life. And I really wanted, I think, the job of a story is to bring people into that world and, and help them, whatever they feel about it, help them have a flashlight into that universe. Let's turn now to your second book, which is Ashley's War. And it focuses on on Americans, on American women who were in the military in Afghanistan. And they're in a unit called the Cultural Support Team. Now, that all sounds pretty tame, but this was actually a group of super fit women very skilled, deployed in night raids with the most elite US male fighting units. And their job was to gain intelligence from women and search women and women's quarters because cultural norms prevented male soldiers from undertaking these actions. Now, many feminists would value women's leadership because they think to themselves that women are more concerned about peace and nurturing. And you would read very often people say things like, if women ran the world, there wouldn't be wars. Yet here are a group of women who really wanted to be on the front lines and really wanted to fight. How do you make sense of that? I've thought so much about that question, Julie. And also I wrote this piece ages back called Patriotism, Feminism and the Way We See Our War Stories. Because 
what was important to me was not whether you liked or disliked the idea of women at war. It was to understand what a group of young women had done when their country asked and to take away people's political views and political debates because it was expressed in young women's lives who could have done anything else. And when you spoke with them, yes, they went to war, but in their view, it was to protect security and peace for other people. They didn't see it as war for war's sake. They really believed they were doing what their country asked in service to stability and in service to supporting an effort that their country required their skills for. And I thought, you have to understand that, to understand who these people are, to have a robust discussion about war broadly. And that was why I wanted to show it, because if you are for opportunity and equal access to opportunity, I don't think you can say only for those things I agree with. And I wanted to let people decide for themselves, but to meet these incredible people who could have done McKinsey, who could have gone to BCG, who could have gone to almost any number of careers, but really felt this call to serve and protect and defend the Constitution. And and that's what they signed up to do, right? What was asked of them afterward was asked of them afterward. But that was how they saw the world. Mm Everybody should read your book, so I don't want to engage in any plot spoilers, but it is true to say that a number of these women made the ultimate sacrifice and lost their lives in Afghanistan, and you very powerfully tell the story of one woman whose life was lost to an improvised explosive device. Given what's happened in Afghanistan now, how do you look at that? I look at it as a slice of history that can't be lost. The point of that book was to say that this happened, that what young women did, cultural support teams was a very benign name for a groundbreaking program that the heads of the special operations community asked for because they needed women to be part of these missions. These young women put their hands up, and the concern was always, I remember talking to a Navy admiral, a retired Navy admiral, said to me, I worry that no one will remember this happened if we don't tell this. This was I was asking his advice, and I said, this is going to be really hard and really complicated to do. And he said, no, you have to. And he had long left service and was just looking at it as somebody who cared about where the country was headed. And in your third book, you tell the story of a different set of fighters. This is the Daughters of Kobani, and this is putting a spotlight on women in the Kurdish militia who fought the Islamic State and were feared fighters, and they won. Can you tell us how you came upon this extraordinary story? So one of the young service members who were in Ashley's War called me and said, you have to come over here. I'm in Syria, and I'm watching all these women. I've never seen anything like it. It just it blows my mind. I cannot believe the respect they have from U.S. men and from their own men in their own community. And where we started this conversation, where I was joking about my father, who who really did come around and became a, a huge feminist. I will I will say, God rest his soul. I understood just even hearing that much the journey they would have had to take. And I said, No, no, no. Listen, I'm doing normal things now. I'm not going to do this, but I'm really interested. I'll, I'll just poke around. But no, there's no way I'm doing this. And then, of course, two weeks later, I called her and I said, All right, you know, because I've been doing research, and there was it was hard to understand who these people were. There was a, there were a lot of snapshots and there was some very good content, but there was not in the U.S. audience a deep understanding of who these women were, who were sisters and friends and daughters 
of people, right? Not superheroes, not one-dimensional caricatures of, you know, girls with a gun, tune on it, tune in at nine. You know, it was really trying to understand what made these people put their lives at risk for this fight. So I ended up going to do a three-part series at that time on this. And when I first, immediately when I saw it, and I saw Clara, this commander who was the only person everybody on the base listened to, I thought, I've landed in a parallel universe, right? (laughs) And so I I just had to understand what it was like for 20 young women with braids and smiley face socks and fatigues and AK-47s to go to war every day and why'd they do it? And they were incredibly feared by Islamic State, if anything, more feared. And you talk in Ashley's War about how the local community saw these US military women almost as if they were a third gender. They knew they weren't men, but they also weren't women as they had known them. Both of those things have made me reflect, if women are in combat, is it even more disconcerting for who they're fighting because it's so unexpected? It just is shattering norms even as the conflict goes on and that means that those fighting on the other side find it even more difficult to push back against women when they're fighting. It was really a, a showdown of legacies, right? The Islamic State what, drawing upon what it saw as its legacy of how women should be in the world. And this was a fighting force that at that point was buying and selling women, right? And it comes up against the women of the women's protection units, the YPJ, and their worldview that was taken from their leader, ideological leader, uh, Abdullah Ocalan, who is in jail. They have really had the sense from his writings that the Kurds could not be free until women were free. And so women's equality was not a symptom of what they were doing. It was a cause of what they were doing. It was absolutely a world in which women had equal rights and equal access to opportunity. That was, in their view, the world for which they fought, not just in their region. And so I wanted to kind of pierce the otherizations of these folks and just show what it was like to be a young woman who was living out this real showdown every single day in incredibly dangerous circumstances and what that meant for men. To get these stories, you have travelled to some incredibly dangerous places. How scary has that been? And surely your family and friends must have been saying, Gail, please don't go. I I truly deserve no credit for the places I've gone because, first of all, I'm not a frontline person in general. I did some of it for Daughters of Kobani, but very little, a lot. But I was in northeastern Syria a lot. And I've been in Afghanistan a lot. And I will say that nothing I've ever done or encountered comes close to the grace and the strength of the people who are living it every single day, who don't have a passport to be able to go to the airport and say, you know what, I think I'd rather sit in the lounge <laughs> at Terminal 5 or whatever than, than deal with this. And so anything I've ever done is, is truly pale by comparison. My family, you know, I think they're very accustomed to me doing deeply unusual things. But it all comes down to, I lost my mother. My mother uh, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 10 and a half. She was 33. And she passed two and a half years later. And I was just listening to something Dr. Maya Angelou was saying about like once you realize that death is the final journey, sort of everything else feels less scary. And I think I grew up with such a sense that each of us has such a limited time on this planet. 
that we have to use it to do things that we believe matter and have weight. And if I could do a small thing, tell a story that connected people to these women and saw and helped them see that they were young women, just like the daughters, cousins, and friends on your street who happened to be born into extraordinary circumstances and rise to that moment in the way that felt authentic to them, then I should. What's next for you? Another book? Uh, two things I'm working on. And this is always the question for those who are listening who write books. This is a question you dread. Like you go to bed at night and say, please don't ask that. Uh, no, I'm working on two things. So really thinking about climate and gender really trying to get people to see that you cannot talk about one without talking about the other. We wrote a paper in 2014 for the Council on Foreign Relations, which I think all of three people read, which became rather groundbreaking later, but only in hindsight, that was about, called Fragile States, Fragile Lives, about climate, natural disaster, and child marriage. And the fact is that the minute you have fragility, it is girls whose lives pay the price. 80% of those displaced by climate are women. Women are 14 times more likely to die in natural disaster. If you got women equal access to inputs, you could make up for the food lost to climate, basically through better farming production. And in places that experience drought, child marriage rates go up to 118% higher. So all of this stuff matters, but we never talk about it, you know, not nearly enough. So I'm going to do some work on on that side to try to help people see and highlight some of the incredible work people are doing to draw the connections and say, if I told you there was an untapped asset that could give you greater productivity, less susceptibility to natural disaster, less concern about climate change because they were helping to both decarbonize and create more sustainable processes. You'd be like, great, where can I deploy my capital? But because it's women and girls, we see it as an impossible question. And I really want to drive home the idea that to create the transition to clean power, you have to create a power transition. Can't wait for it. That's fantastic. (laughs) When are we going to be able to see your books on our screens? The books are both in the process of adaptation. I uh, really am supportive of the incredible people that we're working with. And I would just say Hollywood has its own set of timelines. So I will I will absolutely come back when they are ready. Now, I'm going to come to the final set of questions. I always ask my guests, what's the worst misogyny you've ever experienced? <laughs> Where to begin? Do we have a few hours? <laughs> um, no, I would say... I was working in the private sector, and I made a call about something that was going to happen in Washington. I had come from covering Washington. I knew the call was right. Everyone in the room actually agreed. It was, okay, that's great. No issue in the room. And then later, an executive took me aside and said, you know, you really shouldn't be such a know-it-all. And this was at a firm that actually was, you know, really there to make calls for clients. And I said, oh, and I really felt like I had been punched in the stomach. And it just taught me that I had to tell other people when I reached different levels that that wasn't okay, but just not by preaching or being cranky, but by being a happy warrior and saying that just because things haven't been this way doesn't mean they have to be this way going forward. I like happy warrior. That's good. (laughs) Now, if you had all the power in the world for just a moment and you could fix one thing for women, what would it be? Equal access to capital. Equal access to capital. Because I remember Kamala telling me at the beginning of this, and I remember this, watching my mother at the back of an envelope trying to figure out how we would make rent that month, that money is power for women and earning an income earns respect. 
That was Kamala in Afghanistan in 2005. And that is 100% true and even truer today. And actually, I really worry about that with the clean tech transition, that not enough women are deploying capital. Let me put a fact to you now. In the US, there have only been six women who ever reached four-star rank, the highest rank. Does that surprise you at all? No, but I would say that those women have paved the way for an entire generation that is going to look very different. And I think the generation now sees the world differently, both men and women. And I think those women who've come up are incredible leaders who are going to transition from service in the public sector to the private sector. And I think they will help reshape things. And finally, on a podcast named A Podcast of One's Own, of course, we've got to close with a Virginia Woolf quote. Virginia says, For masterpieces are not single and solitary births. They are the outcome of many years of thinking in common, of thinking by the body of the people, so that the experience of the mass is behind the single voice. Gail says? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more because the only way you change the world is by changing how we all see it together, right? And by de-otherizing ideas that feel revolutionary and helping them to feel as comfortable as you're worn in shoes. And I deeply believe that in many times the elites are the last to change, that the moms in the Midwest of the US and in the South of England are the ones who are going to be changing the world and leadership, which has power, will be then inclined to follow. I hope you're right. That's a fantastic vision of the future. Thank you for a great conversation. Thank Thank you, you, Gail. Thank you for having me. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time.